Hello, and welcome to Artbox DNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I reached out to Gabriel Schaffer. Gabriel is a visual artist, muralist, writer, curator, and gallerist. Gabriel's works rethinks rural Southern spiritualism in a realm of archetype stories with an urban approach. He uses elements of comic book illustrations, graffiti, native and Mesoamerican symbols through the lens of a visionary outsider art. With an accompaniment of creatures and characters, Gabriel uses the mythologies, overdrawings, assemblages, and paintings. Gabriel is also a curator and part owner of Mortal Machine Gallery in New Orleans. We talk about his exposure to outsider art, his personal mythology, what makes American folk art one of the purest forms of American art, the origins of Mortal Machine Gallery, and his advice to other artists. So, with that, sit back and relax and enjoy the interview. Right, here we go so are you ready for this yeah let's go all right let's do it all right so what's your origin story and how did you get your start into arts uh, i was um raised in parkersburg west virginia and my mom is a renowned folk uh, slash outsider visionary you know one of those or all those categories artist and so from the time I was born, I was in an art studio. There's pictures of me in like a sling while my mom's painting these Grandma Moses style landscapes that she was known for at that time. So I I grew up in it. It's something that I just always considered because of the fact that it has always been a part of my life and my upbringing and my relationships with how I felt about it you know, changed all through my life. I don't really know how to separate the notion of me participating in something creatively any more than I understand how to separate my brain from my skull. You know what I mean? So like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's actually my connection to the creative process and my connection to art in general, or just creation really, honestly, because I feel like I don't want to limit it with the term art itself and and have folks think that that just means paintings and drawings i am predominantly at this point in my life interested in all manners of creative processes and different disciplines but it originally started out in my mom's studio when i was a kid that's where it all started and uh, just being around her when she was working all the time and drawing and painting as a kid and while she was drawing and painting but it was just something I just did. I never really thought I was going to be doing it on the level that I've been lucky enough to do it on because yeah. my mom was like already famous in our minds when, when I was a kid. So it was like, well, why would I even try to do that when my mom's on the today show and like Oprah owns her stuff and everything and everyone in the city thinks she's like this witch or whatever. You know, I thought <laughs> there was no way to like ever go beyond that. <laughs> so well, hold on. I'm going to stop I, you there. The, so people around town thought your mom was a witch. Oh yeah. There's, we're a pretty illustrious uh, group, uh, me and my mom. And uh, so, <laughs> um, so over the years, there's been every number of, I think like narratives that have been, placed on her and then I'm used to it now in my life too but when I was growing up specifically in Parkersburg Parkersburg it's actually like not small in a certain respect because I believe it's like a few hundred thousand or a hundred thousand I think it's like maybe a hundred thousand people I don't know it's it's not like a super super small place but it still is small enough and it's still West Virginia which if anybody <laughs> understands what that means when I say that it's very particular so my mom when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. And this was after her agent had discovered her. And she was in this book called Appalachia that was one of the first outsider book museum tours that was being organized by uh, bourgeois culture at that time and kind of yeah. making its way into upper middle class and upper class consciousness around the country. Uh, my mom was a part of that first book museum thing. So during that time period, though, she had a heart failure that occurred, and oh man, so she flatlined for uh, a little over a minute. Oh geez! And when she came back, thing like things had been altered, you know, about her. Wow! And my mom like had no problem with expressing who she was. Like there was never any hesitancy or shame in the way that my mom expressed her personality. For example, like. Within the first year after that, she had this, she took these sketches and had this 
metal sculptor fabricate these cutouts that we could place in the yard. They had these like solid stands that if you placed them into the ground, they would stay steady, right? And stationary. And they were cutouts of like these, they were all black. They were painted all black. And so they were like these nude pregnant women wielding like serpents and lightning bolts in their hands, really wild folk, witchy looking images, you know? And so people would like drive up and drive past our house to be like, that's where the crazy art witch lady (laughs) that died lives or whatever. And like, I remember one of her best friends was a hairstylist and she got fired from her job because she was my mom's friend. Oh, um, geez. Worried about my mom, like, cursing the shop. Wow. That's a medium, small town kind of uh, thing that happens. Jeez. <laughs> well, the rumors around the folk art world is that my mom's actually, that we're actually part werewolf. Uh, <laughs> because my mom, um, and there's some people that actually claim they've seen my mom turn into a wolf. I don't know what, what the deal was. I wasn't there when those supposed narratives happened. I've just heard it from them and heard it from my mom because my mom drinks this stuff called colloidal silver and she's been drinking it for like a long time. And so everyone in the folk art world thinks that my mom's drinking silver to keep herself from becoming a werewolf or something like that. I don't really understand how that story works with them. Wow. So there's like all kinds of stories like that that I've I don't even know anymore. Like, I don't even remember because there's just been so many situations in my life like that. So, yeah, like that's where I came from was was her, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to switch it up here on you. What is your own personal mythology then? Because it sounds like you kind of were indoctrinated into a lot of crazy mythology as a kid. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, aside from my predominant fascination with sort of studying and participating and facilitating various creative processes is underneath of not just the mechanics. Like I, personally have always been attracted to storytelling and I've always been not just fascinated with, you know, practitioners that are really great storytellers in different disciplines, but my own personal explorations in my work have always been based around narratives. Yeah. And for the last six years, I guess it's been, I discovered this space inside my head called devil town about six. Yeah. About six years ago, right before I came for the solo show for red truck was when I first glimpsed devil town. And so like ever since then, a good majority of the work that I create. And even if I have had independent ideas, it's like gravitational pull of that alternative reality in my head just pulls it in and converts it. I have a few things I have released over the last six years that are pieces that definitely are connected to it. But I would say the work that I've done in my mind and then also in my iPad and and notebooks and all that, I was like a really, really very hyper-productive artist when I was a studio artist. And it's like, since I've been curating, all that productivity has changed in terms of how it translates itself now. So I've had a lot more ability and luxury with the times that I'm capable of finding to really get to know what it is that I am releasing into the world, you know? Yeah, I can relate. Ever since I started doing this radio show, uh, a lot of the personal work that I do has kind of been uh, slowed down as well. Yeah, we have no choice. We're made of meat and we're dealing with time. Yeah, especially for you. Yeah, Yeah, that's been another uh, real special journey is the last six years of just sort of reflecting, learning, processing, developing my relationship, not just with like how I think about my own work now and what I want to do with it with my life, but also obviously my feelings about the creative process in general, I think has broadened and deepened in an exponential fashion since I started having the privilege of working with so many talented folks. So at uh, one point, and I, I figure that this was a kind of a contribution to where you eventually went, how much did writing play a role at the beginning of your career? I mean, that's what I thought I was going to do. And it still might be a thing that I'll end up back and just focusing on. I mean, I love writing. It's just that that's all I cared about until I was 27 hmm. was, was writing. That's what I envisioned um, that I was going to do was that I was going to write short stories or I really originally when I was in high school, you know, I was very passionate about 
film and had worked on some screenplays through high school and I had written some theater screenplays as well through high school and junior high school. And so I was really fascinated with that particular method of writing then. Uh, but then as I continued to go through my 20s, I wrote a lot of poetry and wrote a number of short stories. I remember going up and into my late 20s. That's where I thought I was going to be doing, man. I thought I was going to be writing, you know. But then you you shifted that creative output into painting and collage yep. work. And the originally, it was painting. The collage came about like, like probably about two years after I made the conscious decision that, okay, I'm going to give everything I've got to visual art. And I, I am grateful that you did that. <laughs> Me too. So, <laughs> so no with, with life, that would have been if I hadn't done that. <laughs> well, or a, a screenwriter—that's a tough—that's a tough line of work, right there. I tell you that. Yeah, writing in general, I think, is just a is a maddening choice. I mean, I love writing, but that's a grueling. It's very grueling. Process. Yeah, if people out there are thinking that being a visual artist is tough work, that that is just as is worse, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I mean, like at least I have a physical payoff when I'm making drawing or a painting, and in a lot of ways, like depending on how fast of an artist you are, it's a lot more immediate. Yeah. As far as the feeling of that too, there's something much more visceral to me about making visual art versus I just don't think anything about writing is visceral at all hmm. that I experience. It's so neurotic yeah. and so mechanical on a lot of levels. I mean, there's inspiration elements in there totally, but I know how my body has behaved in various circumstances when I've been working in a studio making visual art versus how I behave when I'm writing. And I don't want to say restrained, but like confined process in my at least for me when it comes to writing. Yeah. So, yeah. Then uh, kind of shifting more into the visual work, because you said you eventually found collage. And so it seems yep. like once you found that, you were able to run on all fours, as the old expression goes. And so what's the role of collage and color in your work from back in the day up to this point today? Well, the collage came from my ex-wife when we first started hanging out in Asheville. In fact, it was our first date. She knew that I liked abandoned buildings and like exploring abandoned places. And there was a mica factory that was at that point still abandoned in Biltmore Village. So we went to this abandoned mica factory and we were like exploring inside of it. And we found this closet that was stuffed with all these old leather bound ledger books that dated back to the uh, early 1900s and late 1800s. Oh, geez. And they had just been left there, you know. It had been forever since anything in function there and people would like squat and so you could see squats places in there where people were had like slept and hung out or whatever, lived right. for a little while. Yeah. So I knew that like no one was going to be missing these uh, ledger books. I don't know that we got all of them, but we got a whole bunch of them and put them all in the trunk of her car. <laughs> and I just remember thinking at that point, I'll do some drawings or paintings on these. And it was definitely 05, 06 was where this started happening. I think six is when it crossed over to where I just started to have these ideas of different methods that I wanted to experiment with, with utilizing the paperwork. But it was more specific than just like collage. For me, I specifically wanted to work with, and I still am the same way, paperwork that I work with, mm -hmm. I only work with ephemera. Um, and I've always only worked with ephemera. Now I have utilized older comic books and stuff because I'm also a huge fan of comic books and uh, comics had a, just as much of an influence on my art growing up as folk art did. But that's one thing outside of your typical antique ephemera that you might see in my collage work. But other than that, everything that I've used in my collages over the years was always were salvaged from old houses or were like old handwritten letters or old children's art or like came from flea markets where I would like after a while start, you know, hunting for ephemera in flea markets or all different kinds of manners of situations that I came upon all kinds of wild paperwork. Did you do any dumpster diving? Oh, yeah, man. I actually, one of the wildest dumpsters <laughs> uh, was the score before the Red Truck show six years ago. I was jogging in the neighborhood and someone had passed away and they had this big dumpster in the uh, driveway that they were putting all these items in. And I remember seeing poking out of the top of the dumpster what looked like really good conditioned furniture, you know, that I was like, whoa, what the heck? And so I like, Climbed up, looked down in the dumpster, and the first thing I saw were these boxes 
And one of the boxes had this little book that had an embossed, very organized, non like satanic, but still pentagram on it. And I was like, what the heck is that? So I got these (laughs) boxes out and came to discover that the person that had been in that house was an older lady. And she was the grand matron of the Eastern star in Asheville. And so I don't know if you know the Eastern star, but they're the lady masons basically. Yeah. So all of her books, her correspondences, ceremony stuff, like I got all that. Wow. So all the pieces that were in that red truck show, and even still, I still have a chunk of that paperwork. The show that I'm going to be in in July um, here, that'll have some of that paperwork used in it. We sold one of my paintings yesterday. That painting I didn't. Uh, last year, um, that one has her paperwork all through it too. For me, when you're talking about collage, that paper has to already have like a life to it. You know what I mean? Hmm. So that's why I like ephemera is because I know that there's already a presence with the, the paperwork that I'm utilizing. And to me, it's just like, it's more interesting, but also to me energetically, it's more interesting than if I was just using paper that didn't have a story behind it other than the create the actual creation of it from pulp or whatever, you know? Yeah. So the paperwork that I work with all has a history in some manner or another that I was not actually physically there to participate in before I got it in my hands and transformed it into art. That stuff to me is really interesting, that like transformational process. So then that would be kind of your philosophy of gathering and then doing collage work then? Kind of. And it's also relative to, I felt a need in the early days because predictable as it is, you know, my mom, even though she was doing what she was doing with folk art, our knowledge of the art world was still really very naive. And our knowledge of like art history and artists like grew both me and my mom as I grew up because her agent would either like bring books or send her books or like bring newspaper articles, you know, that we would learn about Basquiat because like she would bring us a copy of The Radiant Child or whatever. And that's when we learned about Basquiat. Really like in the early days of my childhood, it was the obvious people that would be the influences. Like one of the first words that my mom tried to get me to say was Picasso. (laughs) And so I would say like Bapo when I was a little boy over and over and over again. So like Bapo was Picasso when I was a baby. So my relationship with Picasso is a lot different now as I'm much older. But when I was younger and growing up, my love for Pablo Picasso was like the way that some families probably teach them their kids to like look at certain messiah figures you know i looked at picasso the same way that i guarantee there are people who think about jesus yeah so picasso and brock obviously you know they really got the ball rolling on collage and they had a philosophy and they had reasonings that they were experimenting with that were very specific beyond just randomly modgepodging stuff together and they saw the potential for collage as a really multifaceted, interesting way of looking at fine art. And when I first started getting in deep into the collage work and I encountered the conversation that the quote unquote fine art world use collage as a lesser form of art. And then also that it's a applied art and not a fine art. I took contention to that argument and felt that one of the other things that was important was for me to not just try to be the best artist that I could be, but to also continue on with trying to express what I felt like Picasso and Brock were initially trying to, or initially were opening the doors for. So eventually you're started to expand your influences from writing and from uh, Picasso and Bach. And, and obviously when you moved down to New Orleans, that also started to shift your mindset in your work is uh, how did you become obsessed with symbols and images then? That's how we process reality. So, or one of the ways. And so imagery is everything to me. Um, I mean, I, I love audio too. I mean, there's, there's other sensory perception crafts that are ways of, you know, methods of creation that appeal obviously to other senses that are, I think, just as powerful as, as visual. I think audio is as well, but However, I mean, imagery is key. It's just, it's like, I don't really know how it's, it's like, to me, it's like asking how the importance of like breath in my body. So I, it's hard for me to really explain why breath is important. <laughs> Fair enough. You know Fair what enough. I mean? Like yeah. I'm not arranging imagery if I'm not 
looking at imagery, if I'm not considering imagery that I'm looking at, if I'm not meditating on imagery within my own head, if I'm not manipulating, playing with imagery in front of me, I don't really, that's, I mean, there's other things I do in the world for sure, but that's, it's like, I've do, I've done that so much my whole life that I don't even understand that I'm doing it half the time anymore. Do you know what I mean? Unless you ask yeah. me like this. You know, yeah, well, it's like, right. Yeah. It's, it's so automatic for me, everything that I do now that it's just in my nature to work with that. And then as far as symbols, I mean, that's been something that I've learned at a much younger age from writing and about Jungian archetypes and, you know, and then I got exposed through my childhood to metaphysics and the occult sciences. Obviously, if you study or understand religion or occult sciences, symbolism is everything there. And, yeah. and then really, when you start to look at the world around us, I mean, not to be like, I mean, whatever, I'm just going to be me. So it doesn't matter what I say. So the thing I was going <laughs> to say is like a few weeks ago, I was in a line at, outside of this coffee house or whatever. And there was a few folks we were randomly having just chit chat. And one person was like, oh, you know, you're an artist. Yes, I'm an artist. I'm a gallery. And they go into the whole routine of, yeah. well, that's got to be such a hard profession, you know, considering it's not something that the people have to have in their day to day lives. It's not like a necessity, like you oh, know, food or shelter or clothing. They did not say and that. And so I've already been through enough manners of discussions around it all. So I don't, I'm not reactionary in respect that I like knee jerk, but I still have a certain thing that people know. So at that moment, I was like, I'm pretty sure that what you just said is actually really inaccurate. And <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure that every single person standing here, other than me, requires me and people like me to actually exist and they were like what do you mean i was like well you don't know who you are without us yeah you don't know what to wear <laughs> you don't know what to listen to you don't know what to watch you don't know what characters that you want to project yourself towards for you to live through because you might not even really know who you actually are. So you live through us and you live through our creations. Yeah. Your entire world around you, the buildings that you walk in, the cars that you drive, every single thing that you think is a aspect that you built to your identity is something that one of us created for you. So I'm pretty certain that this world doesn't exist without artists. Yeah, that, you have summed it up way better than I have in the past when I've had that kind of question happen upon me. I, I don't want to be cruel, but it's just like, yo, no, you don't even have a life without us, dude. Like, you don't even know who you are without artists. Right. Like, society's constructed in a way that it didn't give you the option to know that you could even explore who you are. Like, the closest that most people that aren't artists come to is getting out of their minds on some substance and then they think that they found identity because they hallucinated for 15 hours straight. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that right. that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, with that being said, within your work, uh, we were just talking about uh, myths and themes. Yep. So what kind of subject matter then do you like to talk about in your work or hold a mirror up to and whatnot? So everything's under the guise of the packaging that appeals the most to me, which is comic book influenced and pop influenced at this point. And yeah. if we're talking about the aesthetic, so, you know, my biggest influences when we're talking about illustrations is everyone from like Frank Miller, Jack Kirby, Mobius, Paul Pope, you know, there's a grip of key comic book illustrators and artists that Camille Rose Garcia is one of my biggest influences. Mm, yes. There's a chunk of people that are really big influences on me that I would say my visual aesthetic is informed by. And then if you're talking about the like subject matter, it's uh, the afterworld or a, and when I say the afterworld, I don't mean like specifically wherever, I don't know that it's so simple that we all go to the same place. So for me, this is like my place. And so it's a place called Devil Town and you only get to Devil Town by dying. But a lot of people don't know that they're dead when they're in Devil Town. So maybe they were human, maybe they weren't. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of things going on. So for me, it's it's like a world where the supernatural is common and it's a world where the, violence is just a thing. Hmm. It's a dark place, but for some reason, it's very fun for me. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe that's how God is. I don't know. Like, yeah. like everything's messed up that God creates, but it's really fun for God. I don't know. But um, <laughs> uh, but it's a place that I really enjoy exploring, and uh, it's got a lot of influences of New Orleans to it too. I've even just started 
utilizing architectural elements and aspects of New Orleans and placing it into Devil Town. It's got a lot of ghosts. It's got a lot of these things called prize fighters that are created for higher class structure creatures in Devil Town to mm. entertain themselves with by having them fight each other. Dude, I don't even know how to go into it. I've created a full... <laughs> You've created like, a world. We'll, we'll talk forever. Like I've yeah. got multiple... You know, the thing that I've been working on is called the Lords of Devil Town. And so I've selected nine of my protagonists from this space focused on their origin stories. And so I've been oh, that's cool. for the last year, year and a half, just focusing on those nine protagonists. But previous that year and a half, I would just let my head go and I would just imagine, oh, what's this like in Devil Town? Or what would this be like? Or sometimes I just pretend I was walking around in the place in my head and like trying to look around and see if I could learn or pick up something that I didn't pick up before. So I don't really know, man, what Devil Town is to define it in a simple fashion other than it's just my my place. I think that it's very akin to New Orleans and New Orleans is the perfect place to hold me so that I can be able to explore it in a way that makes sense. Like, I don't think I could explore Devil Town in like Arizona, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> Or the other kind of devil town, uh, Las Vegas. I love that place, but that would be a different kind of thing. Yeah, like there's something old about devil town, but also like retro. I'm really into retro futurism. So I'm mixing like old New Orleans with, you know, retro sci-fi elements too, to the vehicles and to the styles, weapons, and the buildings, and the architecture. Now, are you, so it's like Sid Mead with old New Orleans. I was going to say, because it seems like that time period of uh, sci-fi architecture and art uh, during the 60s and early 70s was really what seems to kind of still be relevant today for a lot of people. So not, not too surprising. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons for that is that there's just really a very small number of and smaller and smaller number of creatives in the world that aren't lazy. <laughs> because like, it's yeah. super easy to be like, oh, I can just like, oh, I like this guy. I'm just going to do something kind of like him. Yeah. You know I mean, as opposed to being like, well, what happens if you take your influence and you just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and dig deeper? Next thing you know, that influence is like way back there and you've gone to somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. We live in a culture that's all about remakes and redos and reboots. That's true. I sometimes worry about that personally. I don't because it means I have a distinct advantage over a lot of other creatives. Mm, um, okay. But I do worry about what happens when people like me and my generation or the ratio of younger generations, like how many of the Gen Z kids are going to be capable of actual personal mythologies versus mythologies that have been around for 50 to 75 or 100 years that they're just reinventing. Yeah. Or more specifically, uh, Greek myths, which, you know, always seems to still pop up today. Oh, yeah. The archetypes of that stuff is, I mean, all I, I don't know that we're ever going to escape those archetypes, whether we're aware of them still being the ones we're utilizing or not, you yeah. know, because they had to come from somewhere before that, too. True. So I think that like the Greek archetypes of the gods and all that stuff. Definitely. When I was a kid, I was like crazy interested in that for sure. And obviously in comic books, like that's all you're seeing is like a lot of Greek references, you know, Superman and all that stuff. Like you're seeing it all, but I don't know that that's ever going to go away. I mean, that's, we're, we're touching on Joseph Campbell territory there. And I feel like those things are perennial mythologies that are never going to leave our unconsciousness. Joseph Campbell is one of my personal huge influences, uh, so, yeah, I, I can go there all day if you wanted to. That's when you ask about symbols and um, yeah. meaning and all that. Like, I mean, Campbell and Jung or who and Danny Carey from Tool. I mean, those are like my main instructors oh. when it comes to those specific. I mean, Danny really got me to consider symbols in a deeper fashion. And I was interested in Jung and was interested in Campbell. But when Danny came in to my life as like an influence beyond just the music. He really impressed upon me. I remember in my early conversations with him, really seeking deeper into the works of those folks and considering <laughs> symbols in a, I don't want to say different, but just having some alternative ways of approaching symbols in the creative process than I had considered before. Right. Yeah. Like a, a different perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's a drummer too. So that's one of the other reasons why it's, he would have a different perspective on that, you know, oh, what yeah. I mean? because he utilizes symbols and combines them with time signatures and is able to create rhythms out of that. Whereas, you know, what he was trying to kind of like teach me was based more on 
I think like meditation and contemplation of certain things. Yeah. It's deep sea diving is the best way I can describe it inside your brain, you know, and yeah. Lynch talks about it all the time when he mm-hmm. talks about seeking for ideas and he's like, Oh, you go down into the water of your mind and like you see all these fish and you know, you can grab one of those fish and you come up and you got an idea. Right. But the really unusual, larger, you more unique ideas are found in deeper levels of contemplation and meditation and process. And so I think that having an understanding of how to use symbols for that method is really useful as an artist. I also have to throw into the mix too is Alex Gray, you know, cause he is another one that is totally metaphysical on uh, with a lot of his work too. And I just wanted to throw his name out there. Yeah, of course. I saw his stuff before tool brought him into the mix. Cause I remembered seeing the paintings of the, his figures without the flesh so that you could see underneath the skin. Now I didn't see the sacred mirror series until, well, no, a buddy of mine that was a painter when I was still writing and I was living in Athens, Ohio at that time had a book that was an Alex Gray book. And that's where I remember seeing it then. Yeah. That was before I was friends with Danny. But Alex became another, yeah, I mean, I met Alex when I would do the Outsider Art Fair. That's when I first started my career was kind of like at the Outsider Fair in New York. And mm-hmm. he had his residency in Soho when I first started doing the Outsider Fair. And there was like three years in a row there when I did the fair that I would go to the chapel sacred mirrors and visit Alex and Allison. So yeah, he's someone that definitely is aware of the inner mind, but I think that even with Alex, like Alex has his own particular way of looking at that. And a lot of folks gravitate towards it. And there's some universal things that Alex has touched on that I know that I feel are fairly universal. Like for example, the universal mind lattice itself that he painted, I've seen that. So I, I know that exists. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of people are aware of the chakra systems. And right. so he does touch on certain things, I think, in his artwork that could be universal, possibly, but it's all done with his particular vantage, too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, with that being all said, right? In what ways do you think your work affects people? I mean, I've seen it uh, or been lucky enough to see it happen for, um, like 17 years now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, 18 years. And that's my visual stuff. And I'm starting from my first professional show. You know, I'm not counting the years before that. So I guess you would say I was professional with the first outsider art fair. And that was 05, um, January of 05. And I've seen all these different ways. You know, I think there was so long that I had to go through a lot of things to understand how my work affected me. Mm-hmm. You know, well, for a right. Long time. Yeah, that's usually an ongoing, right? Yeah. And then just witnessed more than anything else, different situations over the years of how people might connect and be affected by it. I mean, I think that at this point, I'm not as concerned with... I mean, I don't want to ever like have anything that I put out in the world that I feel like is harmful to people. So that much I do want to really designate is like, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have any problems with going into really deep, dark places and finding a way to like make them digestible, at least for me. But I don't want to create anything that has a malice towards anyone that participates in my creative byproducts, but still be capable of discussing and exploring violence and exploring extremes. Like I'm very fascinated with fringe extremes. So in my work, you know, the idea of like, oh, someone be like, well, what were you working on last night? And I'm like, oh, it was a bar fight amongst a bunch of ghosts, you know, that were loaded out of their minds on this drug that they're addicted to, that these nuns grow uh, in this like cemetery under a full moon. They clip these roses and they dry the roses and then the powder, they turn into the substance and these ghosts shoot themselves up with it and they get into these like bar brawls and it's like people bet on it and stuff like that. And they're called ghost belugas. And they'll be like, okay. Wow. And that's like a real simple one. That's just like a real simple fantasy. It's not, it's not as elaborate as some of the other narratives going on. And to some people that might be like a dark place for a person's brain to just naturally go to, but it's not at all for me. It's like watching a TV show in my head, Yeah. but more like I'm in a director's chair and I'm just kind of observing and breaking down what I'm seeing in a room beyond just the narrative itself. So like, even though there's dark elements to what I'm working with to some people, and that's the thing about living in New Orleans is people walk in the gallery sometimes and I'm like, man, some of this stuff is kind of dark here. And I'll be like, no one here in the city knows 
Like none of us know that we're dark here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we're not aware of that. Like only you are aware of that because you're not here all the time. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I was going to say you are, you're not from around here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess like for me, I just would like to know that whatever it is I'm trying to do is, I don't know. I just want to entertain people, honestly. Like, and if they get something out of it beyond the entertainment, if they, have some kind of glimpse into who they are or they're able to have a realization cool but really it's my craft has become much more selfish for me than it used to be hmm. i don't really care about the audience to be honest with you okay no that's that's fair when it comes to my own personal work because right. i don't have to because of the fact that i curate right well right so the feeling that i used to have when i would do shows where i was curating where i'd be like gee is everybody gonna like me yeah. like yeah. It doesn't matter to me anymore because I like me and I like what I do and I have a lot of fun doing it and I have a certain standard that I expect it to be. And if, and I've already had enough interactions with artists that are my peers that I used to just like idolize that have seen my work that have given me enough positive feedback that I knew they weren't lying to me, you know? Right. I mean, I collaborated with like Camille Rose Garcia, you know what I'm saying? Like I painted, in the same room as Mab Graves multiple times, like Alex Party's not going to and Skinner aren't going to tell me my stuff's dope and BS. Yeah, well, true that they will not. So you know, those are things that I've witnessed over. Robert Williams, bro. Robert Williams saw my work like four years ago, and that just like changed everything about the way that I thought about my art. You know, when huh. Robert Williams is telling you why you're not painting, we need you in this. Like, you stop worrying about what the average person thinks about what you're doing. I'm more concerned about what Robert Williams would think about what I'm doing. Right. And more so for yourself now, like you said, because it's, it's more all about, for me. Yeah, it is yeah, now when it comes to my work. Yeah. And we'll touch on the curating aspect of things, but that is a whole different hat right there. So saw this from a previous interview that you had done and it kind of stuck out with me. And I really wanted to know what makes American folk art one of the purest forms of American art. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an easy answer now. Like, so when we talk about that, it's specific to certain generations of folk art. I do not believe that what some folks would refer to as contemporary or modern folk art, which are some of the things that I show now, is a part of that statement. What I'm referring to there is first generation folk and second generation folk which is folk and outsider artists that created work. Television was around, sure. So they yeah. might have had a TV. Yeah. Um, they had radios probably, but there was an internet. Like I'm talking about pre-internet <laughs> art. Yeah. So that statement relates specifically to folk art created before the internet existed. I would say like the lines of it started to get blurred in the 90s where other things started to come into play that start to affect the nature of that statement that I made. But if we're talking about Henry Darger, if we're talking about Bill Trailer, if we're talking about Mose Tolliver, if we're talking about Howard Fenster, if we're talking about Ari Miller, Thornton Dial, Purvis Young, you know, Lonnie Holly, Jimmy Lee Suddeth, are you know, on and on and on. Um, there's a number of, I mean, I, there's like dozens. G's been quilt ladies, sister Gertrude Morgan, you know, if we're talking about those folks, I mean, all, and then there's, there's so many, uh, they're still going on in my brain. I feel like not saying their names is almost like insulting, them, but like, <laughs> yeah, um, fair enough. you know, my mom and Butch Anthony were the youngest, technically Butch is the youngest, huh. I think out of the second generation, like Butch is like the infant of the second generation. And my mom would have been one of the other youngest and my mom's 74, 75 now. Yeah. Butch is in his sixties. So the reason why is because it wasn't informed by pop culture the way that art is informed now. It wasn't informed by the university system at all. I really, hmm. I try to be mindful of not being disrespectful, but definitely had tendencies in my life to be a bit of a punk about things sometimes. <laughs> you know, I had a real strong, coming from where I came from, I had to, and I still have to think about it sometimes and think of like my feelings towards certain sectors of the art world is almost like adversarial sometimes just because of the fact that like art that requires MFAs to sell and art that I need someone to explain to me like a lawyer in a language. I don't understand why something is worth something. I don't really connect with that. And folk art I do connect with. 
I'm sure that for the people that, you know, in New York and that, you know, are all about freeze and Basel proper, those types of like realms. Yeah. There is value in my head for a certain percentage of that, but then there's a certain part of it that to me is just a physical representation of class structure and not actually art. And so that's cool Mm. that they think that it's art for me. Like, there's nothing that those folks will ever create that will be as authentic as what Henry Darger did. Well, that is definitely true. Or Thornton Dial. Like, forget about it. You're never yeah. going to go. Like, that's cute. Yeah, like, the New York school was cute, but, like, Thornton Dial's a monster compared to those people. Like, <laughs> Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns are, like, toys compared to Thornton Dial. That man was, like, working, like, in a steel plant most of his life, couldn't read, and still managed to create artwork in his lifetime that was so monumental and important and you know like philosophical and spiritual right way beyond way beyond any of those fools so you know when i go to these things i was around thornton dial when i was a kid you know what i'm saying like yeah I, w- I visited his studio when i was a kid him and my mom would trade paintings so coming from that from my childhood Sometimes people will might not understand one of the reasons why I'm such a smart ass sometimes about certain parts of the art world. This is like, why would I think that's important when I literally was raised around gods, you know, like that's cool. All that money in these magazines, y'all know each other and you're one percenters and Matthew Barney's a thing for you. But like, all I'm seeing is some white kid that's getting propped up with a bunch of garbage art. It's just <laughs> got a big budget. Well, there is an NFT for that. I had to just put that in there because you're right. For, uh, for images no of, yeah, of images of trash cans. Yeah. Oh, well, there's, yeah, there, there's gonna be NFTs for everything. But, exactly. yeah, yeah, but, but, but the, um, I'm, that's why I brought it up, because it kind of goes into what you're saying, you know, about. Yeah, how... I, so I just, that's why I view folk art that way, is because it's the most American art form, visual art form, period, next to graffiti art. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was going to say both of those, to, in my world, almost one and the same, but something that came from organic, and it came from people out of an expression and out of just a pure sense of uh, creativity, you know. And a need for identity. Yeah, like true. this is me. All I'm right. on that wall. That's who I am. Yeah, I was here. Yeah, and it goes back to the caves to me too. But oh like, yeah, um, yeah, that's that's. You know, whole... Yeah, to me, graffiti is a sort of urban inflection that relates to folk because folk to me has more of a rural influence to it. Except for Darger, you know, there's a few people like him and Goaty. Yeah. Like, but Chicago's its own animal. Yeah, you know? I was like, say. Chicago's very unique when it comes to the self-taught yep. narrative. Um, it just is, and I don't, I don't really know if it's like which came first, like Du Buffet and Chicago Outsider, or they both all occurred at the same time. But clearly, Chicago had something like going on there. Yeah, that made it particular as an outsider harbor. You know, I mean, yeah. even though of course all the shows and Andrew Edlin and they're all like holed up in New York. Well. Nah, man, it all was, it, it was Chicago, I think was, is the main art, easily, arguably the main urban outsider influence uh, in the country, as far as if you're talking about the greats, you know, but yeah. um, that weren't rural. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We just covered a lot of stuff there. That was, I don't know how I'm going to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, I think that's great. My bad. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, um, so let's uh, change hats here, change gears. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that little gallery that you happen to be at right now. Uh, yeah. How did a Mortal Machine Gallery uh, come about and what is its focus? Um, so previous to Mortal Machine Gallery, uh, me and Rachel Cronin uh, worked at Red Truck Gallery. And I'll wait until I sell the story rights to Netflix to go too much into Red Truck because that's just too entertaining for me to give away for free. But um, uh, what I would say is that out of Red Truck's demise, there was a moment where a decision had to be made and uh, a few decisions had to be made. And one of those decisions, me and Rach just decided that we weren't going to die. We were just going to lay down and die. I had put my whole life into art and Rach had put at that point in time, a chunk of years of her youth into given a chunk of years of her youth to red truck into art. We just weren't going to accept that as being the moment that things stopped. I didn't intend to have my own gallery. I didn't ever think that I wanted to deal with this level of constant responsibility and constant because it's not just like you're not just responsible to a business when you're trying to run a successful gallery. In my mind, you're you are available 
to everyone. And it's whether you like it or not, like as annoying as it might be, the smallest needs to the most serious needs of your creatives that you're working with, it's your responsibility to tend and be to them and be aware of them. Yeah. You know, and to take care of that as much as you can to the best of your ability. So there's just so many levels of consideration and responsibility that goes into owning a business, let alone owning a successful art gallery or trying to create a successful art gallery in the world that we live in. So I didn't intend to even have that be a thing, but it, I'm also the kind of person that if you put me in a position where if you tell, if like, if I'm in a position where I know I got to fight for what it is that I, it's not just like that. I love art. It's like, I literally don't know that I could live without it. Yeah. So if you put me in a position where that's threatened, I'm capable probably of doing a lot now that I I know that now. So that's where it was at that moment. It was a matter of, it was a decision and it was based on the urgency that we weren't willing to give up. And so certain miracles managed to occur during that time period. And we got a space over on Frenchman street um, that some friends of ours owned. And we started the initial pop-up over on Frenchman street. And I think it was like October or November, two years ago, because mortal was born. If I remember correctly, officially like the first week of October, a little over two years ago. And we maybe opened up the pop-up cause it took us a second to get that place converted properly. I think it was like November when we opened that and yeah, man. And then we just have been trying to do the best that we can to build it since then, despite outside circumstances with the world, you know, occurring as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which no one can control it to some extent, to some extent. So got this new gallery and what ways can the gallery facilitate a dialogue between it and the local community? Well, because we're just, I'm like just really, really, lucky that there are that there is a group of artists in this country and there's internationally as well that have a certain mentality about their work and their work falls within certain genres you know umbrellas uh, whether it be pop surrealism or lowbrow or outsider folk influence things or americana influence things or you know street art graffiti art influence folks or you know if the term new contemporary is something that makes sense to you that you know even though i feel like that's the most generalized term i've ever heard in my life um <laughs> it's like what can we call it i don't know it's new it's contemporary that works like what the hell does that even mean but it's a term people use around this genre yep you know so whatever that is i'm lucky enough to be connected with these folks and i feel like but then New Orleans also has things happening that is specific to us. And so what I try to create is a circumstance that there's a good flow back and forth between, for example, Ron English, you know, is coming here again, Memorial Day, and we're going to do a works on paper show. We're oh, going to cool. show his documentary and we're going to screen that somewhere. You know, I've got this billboard that I have curatorial rights over in the parking lot across the street at the Plessy school. And in all probability, Ron's going to do a mural there. And so what we're able to do is to bring Ron and Ron's work and, you know, whatever focus goes on Ron, those people that pay attention to him, they'll see that he's in New Orleans. And so the hope is, is that, oh, more awareness is brought about New Orleans to folks that are connected to and representing and support and are part of Ron's fan base and vice versa. The hope is, is that like I showed Ron with red truck three or four years ago, I think it'll be. And before that I met him, Camille introduced him to me at scope. And when I was talking to him, I was like right away, like, Oh, you know, if you ever wanted to do a show in New Orleans, like, I mean, cause he's one of my heroes, dude. I mean, I first saw Ron in the Mort Downey jr. Show when I was a kid, <laughs> with my dad, you know, and I, I, w- I thought what he did was so cool with the billboards. I think the, the subject of that Mort Downey Jr. show was why can't my husband get a real job and watching like what he did with the culture jam with the billboards early eighties and stuff was just, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so I've known about Ron, you know, forever. And those first juxes that I got my hold, you know, hold of Ron was all up and always in that stuff. Oh yeah. And yeah, it was always the shows. You always saw pictures of Ron, like Ron was like Santa Claus, bro. And <laughs> When I first met him, I did the same thing I do when I meet any of the people I'm a psychotic fan over. I'm like, yo, how do I get you in New Orleans? You know, and 
Ron's response was, he's like, oh, you know, art galleries, like, contact me to show with them all the time. He's like, I, you know, he's like, I'm kind of bored with showing with art galleries. So, I, you know, I only really want to show with them unless there's something different. He's like, what could you, you know, offer me that would be different than any other gallery? And so I said, well, it just, I said the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, well, we could give you a parade. And <laughs> oh. he's like, you can give me a parade. And I was like, yeah, totally. He's like, okay, let's do a show. And that was it. I didn't even have the time to get to know him yet. I mean, yeah, yeah we, me and Tarsa and him all talked like the next couple of weeks to like get into the details of things, but he wanted a parade. So yeah, he, his show that he came here a few years ago, we had a parade and everything. And I know that he had an incredible time. So I think that what it is for me is like, I want artists that are creatives that I admire and respect and, and like enthusiastic about to have, a opportunity to come to what I feel like is one of the most important cities that's ever existed on this planet. You know, as if you're an artist, especially, or you're a fringe personality, that's a bold you know, statement. If you're an expressive individual. This is the place. Yes, it is. And uh, there's no such thing as too weird in New Orleans. It's impossible to be too weird here. So what I want is those folks to have the opportunity to come here and have a connection to the place. And then I want the place to be able to have the opportunity, whether it be people that live here that are enthusiastic about the arts or whether it's people that are traveling here from all over all the time. I want them to have a space, a venue that they know if they go there, they're going to be able to see something that's beyond what they already know that's here. Yeah. So like New Orleans people can come and see Ron English anytime they want. You know, they can come and they can see what Heidi's doing. They can come and they can see what Rift Blast is doing. They can come and they can see what the new kids that I'm showing are doing. Or they can come and see, like, if Tara McPherson goes back on tour again, when Tara comes through town again, like, they'll see Tara or, like, whoever the hell I've got coming through this year as far as the different people. Yeah. You know, Adam Wildcavage will be here uh, in a couple of days, you know. Natalia would be here this weekend, but she's preggers. But, and I realized that like everyone's all bottled up in LA too. Oh yeah. So if you want to go somewhere else besides LA, here I am, you know, like, <laughs> um, cause you got 15 options in LA right now, as far as I know to show like, so I think that's the other thing I look at it too, is like, I want the South to have its presence within, um, the genre too, because like I, I'm, you know, even though, yeah, I was, born and raised in West Virginia, the other half of my family, Southern Georgia. So like, you know, my background's Appalachian and Southern. Um, and it's what I understand. Yeah. You know, I want to be the Southern spot for the scene. You know, I don't blame you for doing that and good luck. That That's, that's a high goal to reach my friend. And I think you can do it. Thanks buddy. I mean, I'm do the best I can. <laughs> well, uh, kind of wrapping up the interview here, believe it or not, this is one of my favorite questions that I like to ask people. What advice would you give to your past self and to other artists? <sighs> my past self, you're good. Just keep going. You're good. Cause every like situation that was really very difficult or I didn't see how anything could ever progress or I didn't see how I was going to be able to eat, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Those like, there's no way, like if I went back and changed any of that, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. That's, that's the trick question that a lot of people don't realize. It's like, if you change anything that you did in the past, you wouldn't be where you're at right now. So like, I don't know that I would want to really necessarily alter that traumatic stuff because then I wouldn't be able to be who I am and where I am today. So, so for myself, it would just me be trying to project myself into the past to those really difficult moments and having some presence of, to be able to sort of provide comfort for myself to know like, yo, it's going to be all right. Like just weather this, you know, and that's all the only thing I would say to myself because I'm more concerned about my future self than I am my past self, honestly. Yeah, that's true. I care about my future self too. <laughs> yeah. Like my present and future self is way more important to me than what happened to me in the past anymore. Yeah. And then advice to what's the other one? Advice to young artists? Uh, to other artists. Yeah. I could be young, old, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's become difficult over the years to, like, I used to actually have this thing when I got interviewed back in the day when I was like an artist, artist. And I would say you should quit. I said that to a lot of people for a long time because I felt like the people that hmm. really, like we're serious, we're either going to get mad or that was not going to affect them when I say that. 
and people are getting mad regardless if I say that to them because you know you have so much of yourself wrapped up and attached to what it is that you're making on some level or another so that if you were to be like oh what do I need to do to become a better artist and I say to you quit yeah um you're not gonna really like that answer in most cases but it's a form of tough love because like you're just not made for this like you're not like you might be made for two three years you might be made for five years you might find some way to create something visually that looks like somebody else that some other people can connect with and you might even have a way of operating your socials in a way that you're able to get you know 15 20 000 followers and have a etsy store and be able to sustain yourself off of it but now we're eight to ten years and like you're in your 40s and like who are you and like all this <laughs> stuff like you know there's i just don't know that everyone is made for the long ride. Hmm. So I think that you need to ask yourself if your choice is that you want to be an artist. All right, like let's like suspend your ego and like suspend all the stuff that like is putting the pixie dust in your brain to make you think that that's really what you want to be for your life for a moment. Like, let's really ask yourself some hard questions about that. Like, first of all, what are you willing to compromise and sacrifice in your life to actually see that through in a real way yeah because that's something you're gonna have to do and you know are you willing to make the choice of sacrificing having children being married missing events in friends and family's lives being self-centered in a way that might not seem self-centered to you but it's going to seem really self-centered to everybody else because you're by yourself all the freaking time you know a lot of decisions that might not be considered healthy that you have to adapt yourself to and your patterns to in order to actually be what it is you're saying you're going to be and to be on a level like nobody I know that's on a higher level is like living what most folks would be considered to be a normal life. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I could see that it is a tough road. It's like a monk. Like, are you really seriously? Mm -hmm. Like, that's like saying like, yo, you really want to go into the Marine Corps? Yeah, no, that's true. I I like, like the analogy. To get there. Yeah, I, I like the monk analogy. Yeah. For me, it's like trying to like everyone. I think has that spark. Like, ask yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that like if you just like to create, and you like to draw, and you like to paint, bro, you don't have to like think about it like your end all be all is an art career. Like, right? It's the world, and it's the way that our like culture manipulates us on a constant basis that has people so knee jerky that they're just like, Oh, that's what I have to be in order to fulfill everything that I am. And like, just stop for a moment and breathe. And like, think about that for a second. Like, do you enjoy doing that? Or is it something that you literally don't know how to exist without being the best that you can be at it? Cause those are two completely different ways of looking at the world. That is. Yeah. And so I think that's the important question that young artists need to ask themselves. You might be lying to yourself and not realize you're lying to yourself. And 10 to 15 years can go by and you've made all kinds of decisions that will make things very difficult for you at a certain age that you're going to have to process. And you're going to like, I've seen a lot of people become embittered. I've seen people blame the art world. They'll blame galleries. They'll blame everything except for themselves. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So I think that art is a very deep life commitment if the decision is that that's what it is for you, you know? So just, you have to ask yourself, like, what is, what is your willingness and how far you, do you think it's important? It's not really how far are you willing to go? It's you're going to go as far as it is. that's necessary to get to where you need to go, but you need to ask yourself, like, are you freaking really willing to do that, dude? Because I know what I've had to do to get here. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just like one break that did it. You know, there's no, there's no such thing as that big break. No, real no it's not it's it's a lot of starts and stops it's a lot of plateaus yeah a lot of plateaus in a giant mountain <laughs> well uh thank you sir for for that yes sir that was some great advice and is there anything that you would like to go back to and expand on Nah, i'm just excited to keep working and keep pushing and i hope to see you know i just want to keep pushing my program's growth and my artist's growth and I'm just, you know, any vibe, feedback, observation that anyone beyond me and my team and my artists that give to us is always greatly appreciated. You know, that's really, I'm just really grateful for 
what we have and who I work with. And, um, so yeah, for your audience, like hopefully they take the time to check us out and see some of the stuff that we're doing, you know, yeah. well, I'll make sure they do. Yeah. I'll tell them. <laughs> cool. Thanks buddy. Well, with that being said, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to doing this interview. I know you got a, a busy opening coming up this weekend and I, I thank you for taking the time for doing this. I mean, thank you for uh, considering me and my program. Oh, hey, no problem. I want to say thank you to Gabriel for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about Gabriel's work, go to his website at gabrielschafferprojects.com. And his Instagram is Gabriel Schaffer, all one word. And make sure you check out Mortal Machines Gallery website at mortalmachinenola.com all one word and the gallery is on instagram at mortal machine gallery to hear this episode and past episodes of artbox dmv go to the website at artboxdmv.com and artbox dmv is on instagram at artbox dmv so until next time thank you for listening